Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Theo Blackwell is London's first Chief Digital Officer. Responsible for carrying out Mayor Sadiq Khan's vision of cementing London as the leading digital-first local government in the world, Theo provides strategic direction to the city on all things digital, while also facilitating innovation within the dozens of independent boroughs that make up the London metropolitan area. Theo is passionate about transforming service delivery with a resident-first focus and ensuring common design standards across all digital platforms to ensure a cohesive and easy experience for Londoners, whatever they're trying to do. Today we talk about managing IT projects that touch millions of people, how resource-strapped communities can leverage technology for their own benefit, and the difference between interesting technology projects and ones that truly move the needle. Please enjoy my conversation with Theo Blackwell. Theo, there's innovation in local government, and then there's being the first chief digital officer for a council like London, so I'm really excited to speak today. Your role specifically was born from Mir Khan's vision to make London the world's smartest city, I quote. And if that's achieved, do you mind letting us know what does London actually look like? You know, compared to today, what will some of those really tangible benefits for your citizens be? And I guess for the entire metropolitan area at large? Well, thanks very much, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, talk to you about how we're approaching the issue of emerging technology and delivering benefits for our citizens. So I think the first thing to say is that when I was appointed in 2017 as uh, the first chief digital officer for the city, it was really on a, there was a sort of legacy that London had as a smart city that largely came from Transport for London, which is our overarching transport authority. And that had really established London's reputation as a smart city through things like the congestion charge, which which is almost uh, 20, 20 years old. That, that essentially is a smart city technology. It links a camera system with driving license plates and data store held by the government. Its objective was to ease congestion. And that is, in a sense, the first modern smart city application that London had. And Transport for London also introduced contactless travel, first through the Oyster card, uh, and then through your own bank card, uh, so you can travel around the city. And you can also make choices travelling around the city because Transport for London opened up data of buses and trains so that that created an ecosystem, an open data ecosystem, where products like City Mapper, TFL Go, a whole range of applications that allow people to make choices of how they travel across the city. So London had already had really good citywide, smart city, citizen-facing applications that many people don't even see as smart city. It's just part of their daily life. And the challenge was, um, if you look at London from another angle, it's made up of 32 boroughs uh, where London residents live, and the average population of boroughs is about 250,000 people, so the size of a kind of medium-sized city uh, elsewhere in the world, I guess. Those boroughs uh, have an independent 
innovation record and technology record and they often act alone rather than in concert so the challenge for the first chief digital officer role was how we build those foundations for kind of bottom-up innovation and smart technology digital services open innovation so that boroughs start where where most where most citizens experience digital services, how they can do that better together. When appointed, we started talking to Londoners and innovators through our uh, listening tours. It's the largest listening exercise on how technology could be used to benefit citizens. And we came up with the Smarter London Together roadmap. And that said that we needed to have, firstly, common design standards across London when we design digital services so that we could focus on the needs of users and build our own capabilities in designing things around the needs of Londoners. Secondly, we need to have better data sharing, building on our open data traditions in the London data store. Thirdly, real focus on the new fibre infrastructure that London needs for 5G and also building our capabilities to do those smart city pilots, which we had funding from the European Union on. Fourthly, we have to build our capabilities in terms of our talent So that's twofold. One is the talents of the public sector itself, so we can build things rather than just buy them. But also, and this is a key concern of local politicians, that we provided a route through for Londoners to take advantage of the new jobs that are on offer. And the fifth area, which binds it all together, was how we improved collaboration across the city, not just across the 32 boroughs, but between those boroughs, the tech sector, universities, and big agencies like Transport for London. So we established the London Office of Technology and Innovation, which is a small team of data people and designers, so that we can do projects together, not necessarily on a city-wide level with all 32 boroughs, but thinking that four boroughs who've got a specific need, six boroughs or 12 boroughs that have specific needs can work together using those common design standards and do things at scale, both attractive to innovators in the market, but also things that have wider application beyond administrative boundaries. And so those five missions, as we called them, all form part of our roadmap to put people first when we uh, look at technology and also fundamentally fix the plumbing in our city to make it a better place for grander innovation. And I'm sure each of those 32 boroughs have unique administrative and and maybe even more importantly, political elements that drive some of the decision-making at the local level. Are there any challenges trying to corral that big group of potentially non-homogenous boroughs toward pulling in a single direction on any particular project? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think historically there have been. uh, IT over the ages has been seen as this kind of back office function that you could outsource many boroughs chose, in a sense, their collaboration through the companies, just a handful of companies, really, that supply these services, but chose their collaboration to be outsourced like that. And we wanted to flip it. Normally, how collaboration was expressed was also by means of shared services. And without getting too much into the entrails of that, there's a very heavily governed legal arrangements about how certain services that were common to local authorities uh, could be done by one provider together, ostensibly to save money, provide a better better service. These are very, very top-heavy 
ways of doing collaboration, very legalistic, not necessarily focused on the user. So instead, we looked at collaboration, we flipped it and looked at collaboration in a slightly different way, using the principles from government digital service, government digital service standard. And we created something called the Local Digital Declaration. And that basically said, look, there are a number of boroughs in London that are all pointed in the right direction. They want to collaborate. They want to build their capabilities. They want to create more user-designed services around the needs of their citizens. So this declaration, which we helped draft and was then adopted and promoted by national government to local government, enabled us to identify a coalition of the willing in London. So not all 32 boroughs, uh, but about 19 or 20 of them. And if you think about the size of London uh, compared to other cities in uh, in Europe and, and North America, you know, even 20 boroughs, you know, sort of governed population of about 6 million people. That's a very, very large city in itself where the leadership have said, we all agree with these progressive principles of digital transformation. So the way we did it was not by doing a kind of top-down everybody must sign up to a sort of shared service agreement, which I don't think we could have done at that scale anyway, when its benefits would have been so sort of common and basic that I don't think it would have made, you know, much, much progress. Instead, we looked at those 20 boroughs that, in a sense, all wanted to be in the classroom, and all subscribed to a certain set of principles. And we started working with them, to develop things around their needs. And that allowed us to get deeper into digital transformation and data sharing than we ever would have done without it. So really every council and perhaps every borough, certainly every city has a common denominator range of services that it provides. You know, it manages roads, they handle finances and IT infrastructure and waste management and the whole shebang. Very few of them actually have a dedicated data team, let alone a chief digital officer. Why do you think that is? is it just seen as not really a strategic priority? Is it tougher to kind of connect that to the ultimate bottom line when they're putting together a budget? I think part of it's got to do with history and the beginning of austerity in 2010, change of government. There was very much a view that, you know, in the face of budget cuts, you had to protect the front line, but uh, make the back office cheaper. And so IT uh, and I heard this from one lo- local authority chief executive. They didn't really see IT as their business. So it was a core service. It was something that they bought in, managed the price of, and it delivered goods for them rather than something that, uh, as we see it as digital transformers, we see it as a core part of the performance and effectiveness of the organization and its responsiveness to its users, whether they're public service staff or businesses uh, or or citizens. It's changing that perception that digital and IT are back office functions. And really, you know, fast forward from beginning of austerity 2010 to middle of 2020 uh, and the pandemic, uh, effectively, you suddenly see an acceleration of of, of that kind of realisation that digital services are totally core business. And if you do digital services badly and you don't design them around the needs of the user they'll be more costly they'll end up uh, frustrating people who use it and you won't be able to deliver services that people need so uh, i think we've seen a real change in that in that view just over the last decade i think every elected official in the history of local government has probably made the admission that open data and transparency and accountability is going to be their priority and 
oftentimes that actually translates into creating something like an open data portal. A common challenge with a lot of those is actually transforming a bunch of CSV or Excel spreadsheets into actionable info that local businesses and residents can use to, to make their lives easier, which is, I, sh- I guess, should be the bottom line for it. So what are the metrics that any data team, any digital team should use to judge the efficacy of their data program? You know, Is it simply the number of data sets on their portal, or is there maybe something deeper and more tangible they should be aiming for? I, I think this goes to the heart of, in a sense, the legacy of open data. So it's a really, really good question. In a sense, our, our journey on open data from 2010 as a city was uh, that we had a data store that was created very much sort of influenced by you know, what was happening in the Obama administration, the new government coming in, Cameron government championing open data so we could have a sort of generation of armchair auditors who would find the kind of overspending of public services. And they were seen as sort of promoting accountability in, in public services. And the, the data store was a real innovation uh, in its time. But, it, you know, over time, it was almost like the data store was, it was like a creature of its, of its philosophy. It was so open, we didn't really know who our users were. Because we didn't ask them. The designers of the data store didn't ask who the users of the data store were. They kind of assumed uh, who they were. And so over time, I think we felt that we weren't just publishing open data and growing the number of data sets that we have. And literally, we've gone from hundreds in 2010 to the many thousands in 2021. Uh, that just sheer volume is not enough. You need to look at how users are using the data. And as I said, it was so open. We, it was it was almost like, why would you ask who the users were? It's their data after all. So, you know, why are you tracking them was, was I think, uh, glibly the uh, philosophy at the time. But the functionality of the data store grown over time, not just to publish open data, but also to share private data. Because I think the most valuable thing and the metric that we'd be judged by is the number of really useful data projects and data services that arise from the data store and how they're used by citizens and their users and their satisfaction with that. Just publishing open data only gets you so far. You can you can know you know the number of trees in London and it can help you with uh, spatial planning and and things like that. But the really useful data comes with the mixture of open published data and private data sets. And I'll uh, just give you another, uh, just a couple of examples. I mean, we do school place planning for London's growing population by mixing private data sets from the Department of Education with open data that we hold on schools. And that allows you to give heat maps of where people are attending their local school and how far they're traveling. And it also allows you to more accurately plan for new schools in the future to uh, deal with, with demographic change. Equally, open data and Non-open data or secure data is used in what, what we call our infrastructure mapping application, which brings together private data sets from construction industry and the utilities with open data uh, that we know around London's places. So that when someone's digging up a road to lay a gas main or a water pipe or connectivity uh, infrastructure, they can all do it at once. They, they dig once. 
Uh, so this reduces congestion and it also reduces cost for those utilities and re- reduces annoyance for Londoners with, uh, with roadworks. And that would not be it. You wouldn't be able to do that if you just had an, a, a kind of historic open data platform that didn't really think about user need. Like, what do we need this data for? What can we do with it? So ultimately, the aim here is to get actionable data to enable policymakers to be bolder. That's always been the case with data, but also the development and spinning up of data services, which require that combination of open data, non-secure data. And they almost need to be designed like a digital service is designed. So like, what is the user need? What are the key questions that we're trying to answer here? And that's what what makes, I think, a sustainable data service that makes the whole exercise really, really valuable beyond just publishing it. Unlike what I'd call more standardized council services, right? Like for an infrastructure team, a road's always going to be a road and it's always going to need repaired. Your role is a little bit more understanding and exploring the art of the possible. And that's changing every year based on the new technologies that are coming out. How do you manage to, I guess, on the one hand, remain aware and nimble to what's coming across your desk, maybe from a smart city project or whatever it might be, while also marrying that to some more underlying, deeper, long-term strategic goals at the same time? How do you ensure that your attention is adequately focused in the long term while also remaining open to some of those really exciting opportunities that I'm sure come across your desk uh, every few months? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to do both. I mean, I think the things that will make the most uh, impact on Londoners' lives are good digital services. And we've still got a way to go on that. There's some services that we haven't created yet that people would have expected us to create. Like, why isn't there a parking app for London um, is one that always comes across my desk. And, uh, you know, there are a number of answers to that, but it's a legitimate question. There's also a, a question of us looking at, I suppose, just being a little bit aware that you don't always need new technology to give a great result. Look at the crisis. Uh, the piece of technology that was probably the most useful during the pandemic was the humble QR code, which was created some decades ago. That's not an emerging technology, uh, but that's something that's certainly changed people's lives and behaviours. And when linked to an app, which I think the NHS did do a good job on, that's been able to help lots of people who have used it to manage their lives and their and the risk. Uh, of the pandemic really well. At the same time, you need to look to, you know, what's cooking in the R&D labs. I think, uh, I suppose my our fundamental princip- principle that comes from our digital service standards adherence is you need to look at user need. What problem is something trying to solve? Rather than, I think, the legitimate criticism of smart city technology is that it's solution-led rather than citizen-led. In a sense, I think there is a place for us looking, uh, of course, at things like mobility services and connected autonomous vehicles. And indeed, there's a world-class lab in Greenwich uh, looking at these things right now. Um, They've been funded by Innovate UK and a private partnership and, and Transport for London. Really, really exciting things coming out of that. And there's always a place for that kind of test bedding. But 90% of the job is looking at what are people's needs now and how can we help resolve them through easy to use digital services 
and better data. And that's, in a sense, the um, the tension there between emerging technology innovation and what what many of us call fixing the plumbing. And the argument going is if you get the foundations right, uh, you get the design, the data, the infrastructure, the skills, the collaboration right, if you fix that plumbing, you create a much more solid ground for the scaling of new technologies in a way that understands user need than investing a lot in pilots that just kind of hit a ceiling on adoption because those principles and those foundations aren't there. So a lot of the the larger smart city projects, the sexy ones, mobility as a service or smart interconnected streetlights and tidal sensors, they're awesome. We love those. But now let's think about a, a really small council, a small city, a small borough, resource strapped. What are some of the low-hanging fruit from a digital data perspective that those maybe uh, less well-off communities can utilize to bring really immediate benefits to how services are rendered and, and their local government area operates? Yeah, I think you're right to highlight the fact that basically local councils and cities aren't flush with cash to be the latest adopters of the latest emerging technologies. Also, the risk is well outside the risk appetite of, of, of many. But there are really good examples of sort of trying to boil the ocean and think about like the universal application of emerging technologies. There are really good examples in London where councils have, uh, with limited resources, turned to emerging technologies to solve specific problems. And the way they've done that, they have set a particular problem that is important enough to be solved, but not so big as to provide a sort of massive uh, stretch on their resources. The use of sensors and artificial intelligence a collection of councils called the South London Partnership. They're using artificial intelligence uh, techniques, identify and enforce against uh, repeated fly tipping. They're doing it to make their parking system better to ensure that they're planning, for example, for enough disabled parking bays and know how that those bays are used. So, if you talk to any local rep, local councillor, they'd certainly tell you that uh, the first of those examples, fly tipping, is really, really high on the agenda. And I used to be a local councillor and people uh, were totally livid about fly tipping uh, in London. Indeed, you know, sort of product of the housing boom and uh, you'd, you'd regularly see complaints about that. And the way in which uh, those councils have gone forward and said, okay, here is a specific problem, and they've done that ask to the market in a way that the market could respond to, so you know, not using local government speak, clearly defining the problem, they are able to get a wider range of technology to come in to provide a potential solution than they normally would do. Those pilots are currently being uh, assessed, but it really goes to show, I think, that it's about, and much like the sort of data question, it's about how you define the problem. Is there, you know, what is the user need? Clearly stating what the problem is, then going to an open call or an open tender to uh, the marketplace. And I'm not saying the market immediately responded in the most effective way that it could, because a lot of startups and scale-ups are on a bit of a journey on how to deal with public services, but they got there in the end. And so what they've done is, uh, in South London is they've created a 
almost like a template on how you do these things. So how how you ask small but important, clearly defined problem statements that can be attractive to market solutions. When a proposed project idea initiative is difficult, maybe more difficult than it initially seemed and you're already a few months in, how do you and your team determine whether to keep pushing into that challenge to try and come up with a solution versus actually pulling back, going back to the drawing board and maybe reframing the approach or uh, the problem in itself? Well, I think this is a really, this goes to the heart of technology projects. We've had so many examples of digital and technology services where the problem isn't being solved, but the project carries on. Uh, and that ends up in, in expense, cre- creates things that aren't effective. So what we've done at City Hall for our own services to Londoners is to create um, the right governance around this based upon the government digital service design principles so that we can challenge teams all along the way around the progress of their project, uh, not just the digital doers behind the projects, but the domain experts who probably originated with the idea so that we can stop or retire or, if necessary, uh, invest more in, in a project that really meets needs. And that, I think, has been a really significant pivot at the Greater London Authority from when I joined uh, in 2017, and legacy of uh, previous administration, where there were lots and lots of projects that uh, continued despite them not actually being that effective because the project was over, but the digital service continued and people had moved on to the next project. So what we had was a sort of land of, um, you know, some artefact <laughs> services that someone somewhere had said that they'd done and they had but we're actually not very useful. So I think it's really, really important that that uh, necessary sort of housekeeping uh, process is there with digital services. And also with data, uh, we're doing our data audit of um, what, what we have at the, at the GLA. And we found, you know, tens of data uh, projects that we've done that essentially had been done some years ago. Uh, people had moved on but they still existed. You could find them on the internet. No one had sort of said, well, isn't it time to turn that off? That's not useful anymore. So we could uh, concentrate resource on things that were really making a difference. So getting that thinking, that governance philosophy uh, in place, aided by government service standard techniques, was really, really important. And uh, I think a really major step uh, from this administration. Awesome. So for our traditional closing question, we're a bit crunched on time. So I'll ask you lightning round fashion. What's one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? Um, One accepted truth of local government is that it is that it is is slow to innovate. I mean, I, I say that by saying, okay, there are bits of the public service that are slow to innovate. But in my professional career, having worked in the private sector, worked in the third sector, and also for a long time in local government, I am just amazed at the skill and dedication of the innovators that are there and what they're able to do, usually on a shoestring. You know, the kind of armchair critique of, of local public services that they're unable to innovate, it's just wrong. What we haven't done is support those innovators enough with the right foundations 
uh, resource and respect. And although, you know, as with all cliches, there's probably like an element of truth. And of course, there could be more innovation in public services. It overlooks the fact that there is a growing pool of local government, digital and open innovators that are really, really making a difference. And what they need is more recognition, certainly more support, but also be sort of brought in from the fringes of activity into the core of public service delivery. And and I would say that the, the sort of blueprint for that is how government digital service in its first wave under Mike Bracken and Tom Loosemore, what that did in central government, which was really, really revolutionary to government digital services, how they introduced standards and excellent sort of citizen-facing uh, services for central government, how that can be applied on a municipal level, I think is almost like a more important question because more people do more on a, with local services than than they do nationally. So I think that kind of band of innovators, many of whom are kind of former GDS uh, as well, are now in local government really making a difference and they need that uh, respect. Totally agree with your your sentiment on local government. It's it's really where it's at. It's less divisive. It's bigger impact. And um, yeah, really, really agree with that sentiment that local government is full of innovation. It's just not what we always hear and see. So Thea really enjoyed this conversation, diving into the data weeds while also zooming out and hearing your insight on what drives good project management. Loving the work coming out of your office. So really appreciate your time and best wishes for the rest of the year. Excellent, Jack. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.